Happy Spring North Hemisphere! In this episode, apart from the news, we have Professor Aaron reviewing a book about senior transportation. In addition, we have a special guest, Professor Brian Smith from University of South Carolina. Professor Jeffrey Miller from the other USC on the West Coast has conducted the interview. Brian is going to talk about the legal aspects of autonomous driving. This is Mariam Kavishkar with the news mini section for March 2019, episode 51. Despite the trending race between car companies and other research organizations in developing driverless cars, there are some car manufacturers that don't see this trend very appealing. To name one, Volkswagen. In an interview with Reuters, Thomas Sedron, Volkswagen's head of commercial vehicles, mentioned that it will take another five years to develop the technology to achieve higher levels of autonomy. Can you see a business case which justifies these overheads for this period of time? It's just too expensive. Surprisingly, Cedron is in charge of evaluating Volkswagen's autonomous strategy in commercial vehicles such as driverless vans. Volkswagen and Ford are trying to agree on a deal on potential collaboration to develop autonomous vehicles. His main reasons are the price that has to be paid on equipment such as sensors, LiDAR, processors and software, also on cloud computation and high-definition maps. But on the other hand, governments are promising and looking forward to have autonomous cars on the roads. In UK, as the government has promised, the driverless cars will be in full use on British roads. They have been enforcing code of practice to enhance safety. The new rules and regulations make all the companies and manufacturers to publish safety information, trial performance reports and carry out risk assessments. They will also be required to inform the relevant authorities and emergency services. However, Hederson, the road expert at PA Consulting, a global innovation and transformation consultancy, who was lead author of a 2018 report titled as Autonomous Vehicles, What are the Road Blocks, said that having autonomous vehicles on the road depends on six or seven factors and technology is just one of them. He added that the problem is relevant to all geographies. Nicholas Lais, head of roads policy for the RAC monitoring organization, mentions that 62% of UK drivers are afraid of driverless cars on the road, and only 27% believe that this technology will make the roads safer. The similar measures have been taken in Pittsburgh, USA. From now on, to prevent any other casualty caused by driverless cars, the five companies that are testing their product in the city have to hand in their initial information, like neighborhoods where they are driving, timings and safety and risk mitigation plans. These five companies are Aptiv, Argo AI, Aurora Innovation, Carnegie Mellon University and Uber. In the Netherlands, the Dutch cyclists are causing some problems for driverless cars. Although Netherlands is the number one country in matter of readiness to embrace the technology, the cyclists with different shapes and sometimes not adequate behavior are forming a challenge for detection system of autonomous cars. That is why they have changed their focus onto motorways. The Dutch government is working with Germany and Belgium on establishing truck platooning, 
where one human-driven vehicle leads a convoy of autonomous ones, only during the night. Autonomous driving is strongly dependent on software and computing. What if it is hacked? According to researchers at Georgia Tech and Multiscale Systems Incorporation, there is a cyber-physical risk to infect internet-connected vehicles. They used percolation theory to study the effect of hack on New York City traffic. They also suggest that by introducing lots of networks and not just one, we can prevent the city-wide consequences caused by hackers. There is one more report from Georgia Tech which worth mentioning showing that detection system of driverless cars has difficulties to detect pedestrians with darker skin. Investigating the footage from Berkeley driving dataset collected from a few cities, they came up with this conclusion that system acts different to different type of pedestrians. There are other factors like clothes type and time of the day, but based on the skin color, the accuracy drops around 5% for pedestrians with darker skin. Using Doppler LiDARs, will solve the problem with clothing, but can identify only moving objects? Using Doppler LiDARs will solve the problem with clothing, but can identify only moving objects. Speaking about LiDARs, the loading played a significant role in enabling self-driving vehicles from multiple teams to navigate real and complex road traffic environments at the 10th China Intelligent Vehicle Future Challenge. The challenge included both real-world and online testing. The IVFC winner was the Pioneer team from the Institute of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics, Xi'an Tong University and Sony Optical Technology, which was equipped with one Velodin UltraPuck and two Velodin Puck sensors. Well, this is all the important news for this episode. Thank you for being a part of podcast. Let's listen to Dear Haluk and the book review about senior transportation. This is the book review section for ITS podcast. Read by Dr. Haluk Eren, Fırat University, Elazığ, Turkey. The book title is Introduction to Senior Transportation and consists of 212 pages. Published by Rodlich in 2018. Written by Helen Kirshner and Nina Silverstein. Emerging technologies in artificial intelligence, complicated systems, and breakthrough innovations have changed the living style and transportation methods. Senior transportation focuses on a growing concern, since older individuals need the community mobility. It addresses the physical and cognitive limitations, requirements for transportation services, the challenges for the assistance and support needs, and the transportation methods of senior passengers. The present book consists of 14 chapters. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 respectively mention about importance of the issue of senior transportation then introduce most important and distressing issues faced by older adults tending to lose freedom, independence, and control, and then point out the relevance of life transitions and specifically the transitions to transportation options. 
Chapter 4 and 5 present traditional transportation options such as family, friends and neighbors as well as community-based public and paratransit and right-hole services or volunteer driver programs. Then the special transportation challenges of older passengers are mentioned, which are physical, cognitive and situational limitations or barriers to maximizing community mobility. Chapter 6 and 7 give strategies and related tactics in supporting flexible and accessible transportation services and promoting aging as keeping older people to engage in activities of daily life within their communities in spite of physical and cognitive limitations. It emphasizes the importance of senior-friendly transportation options that are available, accessible, acceptable, adaptable, and affordable. Chapter 8 and 9 apply the concept of senior friendliness to transportation. They identify volunteer driver programs as an alternative transportation option, describing a variety of types of volunteer driver programs six critical factors which are assistance and support, crossing jurisdictional boundaries, low cost, providing service in rural areas, risk management and technology. Chapter 10 and 11 discuss volunteering as a general practice of individuals and groups around the world. They introduce five types of organizations providing transportation to older adults, which are community transportation services, aging, senior, faith-based, and volunteer services and neighborhood service providers. Chapter 12 elaborates the feature of transportation. Today, the technology race promises many benefits for older adults for the sake of vehicle innovations, especially autonomous vehicles. Chapter 13 emphasizes the importance of data in the planning, implementation and assessment of measurable impact in the delivery of senior transportation options. The discussion addresses which data are important to collect, sources for such data, and methods by which data analysis might be shared. Sample questions are provided that programs can use as a starting point for considering their own data and research needs. The final chapter deals with transportation and aging in the context of wider aging policy. This book provides a detailed explanation to train the individuals who will likely be decision makers in helping older adults stay safely mobile. Details of senior transportation is incorporated by long-term experiences. Therefore, I hope it creates an awareness in readers. The book can also be useful for researchers, professionals and decision makers.
Thank you, Halak. Please grab your coffee and enjoy Professor Jeffrey Miller's interview with Professor Brian Smith. Hello, my name is Jeff Miller, and I'm at the University of Southern California. And today, I am going to interview Brian Walker Smith. Brian is an assistant professor in law and engineering at the University of South Carolina, with additional affiliations at Stanford and the University of Michigan. He advises cities, states, countries, and the United Nations on emerging transport technologies. He co-authored the Globally Influential Levels of Driving Automation, drafted the leading model law for automated driving, and taught the first legal courses dedicated to automated driving, hyperloops, and flying taxis. His students are currently developing best practices for regulating scooters, and he is currently writing on what it means to be a trustworthy company. Brian's publications are available at the website newlypossible.org. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Um, My pleasure, Jeff. Uh, high from one USC to another. <laughs> exactly. One coast to the other, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, is there... Uh, what you've been doing is focusing, as much as we've seen so much work being done on the technology side of driverless vehicles and intelligent transportation, you've really been focusing more on the regulations and the legal side. Um, how do you see the future of driverless vehicles as a whole developing with your understanding of both the technology and the legal obstacles? And that's such an important point because you cannot understand the law without the technology or, or in many cases, vice versa. Um, necessarily, um, the, the technical understanding is an important foundation for, for helpfully under, analyzing the legal issues. And so if we start with, with, with technologies, I would say everyone talks about this goal of the truly automated vehicle. Um, one where you can be asleep in the back or at home while the, the cars are driving around. Um, now that is not a reality, despite what you know you and I have, have read in, in news reports for years. Um, and so the question really is, how do we get there? What are the pathways? And there are three pathways to this goal of truly automated driving that are helpful to understand because they each raise you know, different opportunities and, and, and issues. Um, so the, the first is uh, a gradual improvement in driver assistance systems. Um, so ordinary vehicles where the automation features can do more and more um, until eventually you can rely on them more and more and then rely on them entirely. Um, and this is you know, the path that, that many automakers, I mean, most prominently among them Tesla, is, is adopting. But certainly GM, Volvo, and others are, are, are moving down this path. Another is, is similar, but, but it, it is an important distinction, and that is um, increasing the safety systems and the automated emergency intervention systems on a vehicle so that they do more and more. They intervene earlier and earlier until eventually you might think you're driving, but really you're not because the, the vehicle is going to prevent you from doing a lot of things that might otherwise cause a crash. Um, and I call both of these approaches essentially something everywhere. So it's not 
fully automated driving. It may not even be automated driving. Uh, many of the technologies available today, in fact, all of the technologies that, that someone can buy are really assisted driving. Um, but they broadly work on vehicles and on all kinds of environments. Um, the, the third approach uh, is what I would contrast with everything somewhere. So these are truly driverless vehicles, at least uh, they aspire to be. Um, but because this goal of, of true automation is, is, is far away, they're, they're limited in scope. So to some combination of simple environments or slow speeds um, that makes automation easier and reduces the risks. And so that's where we, we see the advent of low-speed shuttles operating in specific areas, um, limited in, in terms of their infrastructure needs. Uh, and these are going to get better and better so that they expand in scope. Maybe they expand in the streets they can use and they expand in the cities they can work in and the weather they can work in until eventually these kinds of, of systems are ubiquitous as well. And so all three of these approaches end up in the same place, ideally, aspirationally, but there are different routes that they take to get there. Now, this matters when we talk about um, business cases and legal issues uh, because um, the regulatory regime that might apply to a driverless shuttle in a downtown, in fact, the law that currently applies to a system like that may be different than the law that does apply or should apply to a feature on a motor vehicle that is produced in the hundreds of thousands. And this is where it's important to distinguish, again, among the technologies, of which there are a wide variety, uh, the applications of those technologies, and then the business cases for those applications, uh, and then finally the participants in those business cases, uh, and then the way that law applies to each of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all, all some, some great points. So... We've seen a number of different companies that already have what they're claiming are driverless vehicles on the road, companies like Uber and Waymo and so on. Are, are there still significant limitations that they have? Oh, absolutely. Um and some companies have been very careful in how they describe their systems. Some have been, um, I, I would say, frankly, reckless uh, in, in how they describe. Um, and this comes back in part to, to um, innocent or willful confusion about, about terminology uh, and concepts. Uh, and testing really complicates this. So the, the, the leading taxonomy for automated driving is one that's been adopted by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and um, has been referenced uh, really across the world. Uh, it was originally developed by the, well, the entity formerly known as Society of Automotive and Aerospace Engineers, SA International, um, but it's a sort of broader adoption and, and uptake and is being revised right now jointly with ISO, International Organization for Standardization, right now. Um, and this defines, among other things, levels of driving automation um, that apply to specific features of a vehicle. Um, and if we're talking about 
deployed systems, well, the, the levels work fairly well in deploying, describing features, with some caveats. The, one of the tricks, though, is when we're talking about systems that are being tested. And the, almost by definition, a system being tested cannot reliably achieve what its developer hopes it to achieve. That's why it's being tested um, for development. And so I describe um, really these systems as aspirational in their levels. Um, and in fact, um, SAE's taxonomy applies the level that the manufacturer aspires um, to describe the system that it's testing. So to put this in concrete terms, um, let's say a company um, aspires to deploy a level four feature. That's one in which the automated driving system can brake, steer, accelerate without any expectation that a human driver is either paying attention um, or will actively resume um, in order to, to achieve uh, safety. Um, and so that's the goal. Now, when a system like that is being tested, um, with very few exceptions, companies put a safety driver either behind the wheel or pretty darn close in some sense. Um, a safety driver who is monitoring the road environment, monitoring the vehicle, and intervening as necessary. Um, that's not the how, it's not how in a level four system would work when deployed, but in testing, that's um, part of what's considered a, a reasonable procedure for testing systems that don't yet have the, the requisite level of confidence. Um, this gets confusing um, because is a vehicle that's um, driving itself, even though someone is supervising, actually driving itself? No. The, the example that I would give is there is a huge difference between getting on a plane and hearing the pilot say, hi folks, just wanted to let you know, today um, I'll be using autopilot, um, have a nice flight, and getting on that same plane and hearing the pilot say, hi folks, today you'll be using autopilot because I'm getting off, have a nice flight. Um, the backup is there for the 1% or one-tenth of 1% or one-thousandth of 1% of situations that the system cannot yet reliably handle. Um, and that's, why terminology has gotten particularly confused in the context of testing. This has also mattered um, legally. Um, Uber, uh, back in the day, got into some hot water in California um, for um, testing its vehicles on public roads in California without going through California's required regulatory process. Um, and when pushed on this, the, the, the response was, well, our vehicles require human supervision to be, act, to be safely driven because we don't yet have confidence in the ability of our automated driving system. And because they still require this from a safety perspective, they don't actually qualify as an automated vehicle, such as California's regime, um, in the same way that a Tesla vehicle that is still expected to be actively supervised by its driver uh, does not seem to fall under California's regime, um, to which the Department of Motor Vehicles said, well, no, you're creating a null category because the testing regulations at the time actually required that kind of supervision. So the fact that you aspire to be a higher level of automation means that you need to go through this regime. Uh, as a result, California um, actually 
we yanked the registrations of those test vehicles. Um, concurrently, they were in rather dramatic fashion, shipped down to Arizona, um, and um, later there would be the, the, the fatal collision with the, with the pedestrian in Arizona. Right. Right. So, uh, to, to piggyback on that... With most applications, let's say outside of the the driverless vehicle spectrum for a second, with most applications, when when we test this new technology, we're usually testing in a confined environment, one that we're controlling the constraints. Now, eventually, when this when a new technology gets deployed to the public or whatever the customer base is. It's closely monitored and even tested uh, to, to see if there's improvements to be made. It seems like with driverless vehicles, though, that we've kind of skipped that middle step and we just jumped straight to the public roads and we're testing this around other people where, where they can be potentially hazardous, if not fatal, as we've seen on a few occasions. What are your thoughts on how the law should step in to say whether we should be allowed to test new technologies in a public setting. Wow. So we've been conducting large-scale tests of new technologies for a hundred years, maybe a thousand years, maybe many times more than that. Um, the first cars on the roads were really public experiments. I would say the 20th century was a public experiment in what happens when you put two-ton hunks of metal um, that are capable of going faster than, than people regularly go in the hands of, of easily detract, distractible 16-year-olds or 60-year-olds. Um, and we've seen the, the results, the catastrophic, tragic results of, of that public experiment. Um, any technology, you know, down to a toaster, is in some sense a public experiment at some point, as, as you said, Jeff, because there are risks that are not foreseen and maybe not even foreseeable that we discover in the course of, of use. Um, humans are incredibly creative in finding ways to destroy things or to hurt themselves or others with things. Um, and engineers take that experience and, and make a product better and safer, at least in theory. Um, and so you know, the, the, the safety standard always, always goes up. You know, a product is, needs to be safer than the last one that caused that fire or that injury. Um, and so I think that's important to complicate this, this, this standard picture of, of, well, you design something and then you test it in exclusively controlled conditions and then it's perfect and you put it out, you know, into the, into the world and, and it's happily ever after. I think the reality is, is far more complicated. Now, it's, it's a very important question where we draw those lines and essentially how much confidence should you have in, in not just a system, but really in your um, design and testing and development process in order to put a, a product out into the world or to create some risks. Um, that, that standard's been going down. So, you know, automotive manufacturers at the beginning of the 20th century would, would put out vehicles um, that would regularly catch on fire, uh, put out vehicles with axles that could break, and when people complained about the axles breaking, they'd make them a little thicker and stiffer until people stopped complaining. Um, aviation, middle of the 20th century, um, planes were a lot less safe, uh, and it was the real-world experiences um, 
that that led to uh, increased safety. Um, but but now I think you're right that in in some ways that kind of public experimentation would not be deemed acceptable. And so I think responsible companies in in developing automated driving systems are going to um, make a safety case, make a safety case internally, certainly, and as I've argued, should be expected to make a safety case publicly, to say, this is what we're doing, this is why we think it's reasonably safe, and this is why you should believe us. And those are three really important things. This is what we're doing, this is why we think it's reasonably safe, and this is why you should or can believe us. And that includes not just the design of the system, of uh, the automated system, but the design of the whole system. So how are you developing the monitoring capabilities? How are you training your safety drivers? How are you monitoring your safety drivers? Um, what are the processes that you're putting in place um, before, during, and after any kind of test um, to ensure that the risks are reduced um, as as to, to an acceptable level. Uh, and I say an acceptable level because um, there's often a tendency to think that the status quo is perfect. And so anything that's not perfect must be worse. Um, but our status quo on the roads is one in which, uh, you know, 100 people are going to die today uh, in the U.S. Uh, in roadway crashes. Um, you know, it'll be 40,000 this year. Um, that is a tragic toll, and that can't be negated when we think about new technologies. Um, there, there is actually a risk to not developing new technologies. So what's the, what's the regulatory or legal role in all of this? Um, part of it is a, you know, a prospective set of expectations of, of allowing governments to say we should know what's happening on our roads um, and that's meant different things depending on the level of government and the place um, so um, you know, in Pittsburgh most recently it was it was we would like to know um, who's testing um, how many miles they're driving and generally how it's going in California it's a set of, of reports that have been I think understandably criticized. Um, they're, they're not perfect. Nothing will be perfect. At the federal level, um, that is, at least right now, um, a voluntary safety self-assessment where companies are asked to do much of the, much of what I recommended, to, to share their safety philosophy. Um, and and the hope, at least, is to, to thereby uh, encourage a more public discussion of safety and of the technologies. Um, that's a, a prospective role that I think will really depend very based on, on government. Um, then there's a lot of, of close monitoring at every level using existing legal tools. So federally, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, has, has robust oversight tools. Um, they can investigate, they can demand information. Um, in the production of something, they can push for recalls. Um, the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, which is a distinct agency, has, has considerable investigatory power in the event of crashes. Uh, and state and local governments have a variety of enforcement tools. I mentioned California um, yanked the registration of vehicles. Um, existing law continues to apply to the design and, and, and marketing and 
operation of automated vehicles. And that means laws like reckless driving, um, laws like improper maintenance. Um, these are existing tools that governments can use to provide a check where appropriate without unduly limiting the flexibility for innovation. Um, that's why I'm always reluctant to talk about the new laws that have been passed without starting with what is the existing legal context, mm. because that actually provides a lot of flexibility and that also provides a fair amount of authority for governments to be to be full participants in this in this effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I had the the fortunate experience of being on an IEEE panel with you uh, back in I think it was 2014. And one of of the questions that uh, was looming at the time that I remember speaking in great length with you about and also on the uh, during the interview hearing you you answer, I'd like to pose again to you now to see five years later, if your view of it is still the same. And the question is very simple. When a driverless vehicle gets into a collision, who's liable? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I would turn that question around and say, if my car and your car are in a collision, who's liable? Um, and the obvious answer is that it's you, Jeff, because <laughs> it could possibly be me. Um, but, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the fuller answer is it really depends, right? Um, it depends on the facts. So was there a traffic signal? Um, who had green? Who had red? Um did our brakes work? Um, who was paying attention? Um, all of these factual questions that we'd want to investigate. Um, it depends on the legal questions, right? Um, were we in a state where you can turn right on red or not? Um, what was the speed limit? Um, what is the distracted driving statute? Um, and these laws vary state by state. Uh, and so already today you can't answer that question for the ordinary crashes that, you know, that tragically uh, occur constantly. Um, and so automated driving in, in some sense isn't much different than that. Uh, we want to understand the specific facts um, and we under- want to understand the specific law. All right, so where does that get you know, a little interesting? Well, first is the factual questions. Um, there is there's likely to be significantly more data available for analyzing a crash involving an automated vehicle. Heck, involving for a crash involving an automated vehicle that just passes by, um, we might very well have, have more data uh, to help us understand. Um, data are not perfect. They do not tell necessarily the full story. In some cases, they can lead to more questions than before. So the ideal of you know, pressing play and showing a investigator or a jury um, everything that happened um, with full confidence, I think, is still an ideal. Um, there's a, a great case, actually, where a, an automaker successfully convinced a judge that their own event data recorder um, data was, was unreliable. Uh, this was in a, a case involving a conventional vehicle. But it just goes to show like, how, yeah. how these data are, are, are 
are lacking. Um, the recent analysis of the data that Tesla submitted to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration when that agency was investigating um, some, some crashes involving autopilot also shows that you know, even a company that, that is generally believed to, to have near uh, omniscience in, in the data about its, its users um, seem to have some pretty big gaps or uncertainties in the data that were submitted. Um, so data will be really interesting in, in how it addresses these factual these factual questions in a crash. Um, the second set of, of nuances is is legal. So um, existing principles of law will continue to apply. It's not that there is a vacuum of law. There might be a dearth of cases that actually test or explore how that law will apply in these situations, but there are legal principles to be applied. Um, and so, as with any crash, um, one would look for the entities, the companies or individuals who might be liable under various theories. Uh, and liability is not a binary. It's not either or. You don't say, well, in many places, you don't say, well, you know, the manufacturer was liable, therefore the city wasn't. Or, well, the driver was liable, therefore the pedestrian wasn't. Um, multiple Entities can be sued and multiple ones can be held liable. And so you might say, well, let's see what explained the crash. Um, and, you know, is the user at all liable for, for failing to supervise uh, to the extent that was legally required? Uh, was a manufacturer liable for, for um, selling a product with a defective LiDAR? Was the LiDAR manufacturer responsible for, for that, that LiDAR defect? Um, was this, was the tollway authority liable for for um, performing construction in a way that did not did not appropriately identify to any drivers what what the hazards were? And you go on and on, and you'd figure out each of those claims and test each of those claims. Uh, and some may be viable, and some may not. Now, another interesting wrinkle here is that. Um, a lot of the regime applicable to automated driving has been flexible and uncertain. Uh, those often go hand in hand. So I've argued um, that you know automated driving is probably legal already under a lot of existing conditions, um, and that works really well um, for trying things out um, for 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 deploying on roads, when there are crashes, then a lot of that legal ambiguity will be tested in a very adversarial way um, because you know, an attorney will potentially want to argue that, in fact, certain conduct was illegal and therefore should should subject the company to, to clear liability civilly. Um, and so we'll see potentially if crashes do unfortunately occur, continue to occur, um, maybe more precise resolution of these, these open questions. So I, I talk about a lot of this in, in a paper, um, Automated Driving and Product Liability, uh, which is, I think, at, at newlypossible.org, um, to really think through these liability questions. Um, in, in doing so, I also want to encourage people to, to return to you know, our original discussion, Jeff, which was, um, are you as concerned about, about the prospect of, 
of being injured by a motor vehicle today um, because each one of us is astronomically far more likely to be injured by a human-driven vehicle at this point than by an automated vehicle. And so if we're concerned that there might not be enough compensation or there might not be enough deterrence, we should pose those same questions to our existing regime of motor vehicle um, enforcement and liability and insurance, where in many states you don't need more than twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of liability insurance for those who you injure or kill on the road. Um, that is a hundredth of what our own government says our lives are worth. And yet that's all that most states require us to carry in insurance for our own negligence. Mm -hmm. um, in, in short, um, I don't want to ignore automated driving. I don't want us to ignore the status quo. And I'd like to see us raise the bar for everyone to expect more from conventional driving and automated driving. Yeah. Was that what I said? Was that what I said five years ago, Jeff? <laughs> it was essentially, and I've actually quoted you a number <laughs> of times by saying, "Well, I got this straight from a lawyer." He said, "It depends." <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I mean, in short, the the answer to that is you have to analyze all of the data, gather all of the facts, and then determine who actually is at fault, which completely makes sense. Uh, so I'm going to say I got that straight from you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have many states that uh, are starting to enact laws now and regulations on, on driverless vehicles, but the law always lags behind technology. So when we do have some sort of a collision or a problem with the driverless technology, if the state in which that occurs does not yet have laws, the case would go in front of a judge who then could perhaps set legal precedent. Is it possible then for that precedent to be changed in the future? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is part of the discussion of, of flexibility versus certainty. Um, how much do you want to have a dynamic regime um, that might cause some initial confusion? And how much do you want to lay down what you hope are clear rules that might ultimately be more limiting and, and confusing? Now, um, outside of, of New Hampshire, every state has law. Um, that was a that was a dig at New Hampshire. Sorry about that. Um, um, but no, the reality is that every every state has law. Um, it's law of general application, um, and so reckless driving is prohibited. Speeding is prohibited. Um, rules of products liability or negligence establish who is who can be held civilly liable in the event of a crash. Um, and you know, there is an important distinction between criminal liability, that's where the government prosecutes you and might send you to jail for the things that you do, and civil liability, that is someone where someone who you've allegedly injured sues you so that you will pay them for the harm that you've caused to them. Um, and you know, liability can be used to mean either of those things. Um, and in both cases, there are laws of general application that um, either apply clearly um, or could be applied um, as these new factual situations arise. Uh, now, it's, it's interesting. Um, very recently in Arizona, a local uh, attorney's office released a short letter concluding that, that 
um, there was was no basis for the criminal liability of Uber in the the fatal collision with the pedestrian um, that we talked about. Um, and without more context, it's it's very hard to say whether that letter concluded that that the facts just did not support any any blame on the part of Uber, or whether the law simply did not recognize the kind of claim that would cover a potentially bad conduct by Uber. Um, and so as we see more exploration of, of things like that, we'll see the ways in which law either easily addresses situations or struggles to address these new situations. And then um, there are different legal responses. Um, legislatures can continue to enact or clarify laws. Um, agencies can interpret them. As you said, judges can apply them in that context, interpret them. Judges can also continue to develop what's called the common law. Um, in the civil realm, that's the, the law that we inha- inherited from England and have kept developing on our own in each of our states um, to cover new situations. Um, the whole realm of products liability, um, that is the law that holds companies civilly liable for harms caused by their products, um, particularly defects in their products. Um, a lot of that developed just by judges saying, huh, we have a new situation that we need to apply these principles of common law to. A lot of um, automotive um, law developed in part by just facing these new situations. Um, And I think automotive law provides a a really interesting example because you can see how each of these participants, judges and legislatures uh, and insurance companies, worked for quite a while to create some predictability and expectancy. Uh, and that's why the vast majority of cases today uh, in involving automotive injuries are, are settled um, by their insurers or by others without litigation because these benchmarks are pretty clear. And so automated driving will, will introduce these new factual or legal questions and they will they will be resolved. I don't want to minimize the, you know, the, the, the stressed people who are involved, um, but, but they will be answered and will reach another period of, of, of you know, perhaps stability um, or you know a period governed by our, our robot overlords. It, it remains <laughs> to be seen. In the meantime, there are some interesting efforts. Um, so the Uniform Law Commission is a group that has um, um, for, for decades developed model state laws, some of which have been wildly successful, like the Uniform Commercial Code, um, some of which have not been. Um, and, and they are now finishing up a, a process of, of developing a, a uniform law for states that are interested in addressing certain aspects of automated driving. Um, and I think that provides, you know, one really interesting approach uh, to some of these questions of your initial allocation of responsibility um, and you know, ways of, of really helping to reassure the public about the trustworthiness of the companies involved in the development and deployment of these systems. Okay, uh, so I in in the the technology world. So my background coming from a, a, an engineering point of view, computer science background. When we conduct research, we are trying to expand the knowledge base uh, of the of the field. 
uh, trying to come up with new technologies, different ways, better ways of doing things. In the legal field, it seems like lawmakers are the ones that are always enacting new laws based on information that they receive. How does your role in an academic environment differ from what lawmakers currently do? Hmm. That's such an interesting interesting question. I, I typically think about the similarities or differences between engineers and lawyers in, in a professional context um, because I'm, I'm trained both as a lawyer and as an engineer. Um, and my sense is that, that professionally both fields do much the same, which is you have a, typically a client with a goal and you try to ethically deliver that goal using certain tools um, given certain constraints. Um, and you know, in engineering, your tools are math, and your constraints are gravity. Uh, in law, your your tools really are legal theory and argumentation, and your limits are are are, are, in, are legal ethics. Um, and and so, really, they're 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 very similar in that way professionally. Well, academically, um, I'd like to think that that law and engineering are also quite similar in the sense of. We're trying to each make sense of the world um, and take the innovations that others have developed and push them forward um, through our own innovation. And so in, in engineering, that, that's building on, on research and finding applications of that research or, or advancing your original research in, in law, that's thinking about new legal theory, um, thinking about how you... Um, address situations that law hasn't seen before, um, describing what courts and legislatures do, predicting what courts and legislatures will do, um, and prescribing what you think courts and legislatures should do. Um, that's why I, I really love my, my field. I call it the, the law of the newly possible. Um, hence, hence newlypossible.org, mm -hmm. um, where I'm, I'm not just interested in a specific technology. I'm interested in this relationship between law and technology um, regardless of the particular case study. So, uh, you know, at uh, one point that was, that was um, law and cars. Um, now it's law and automated vehicles or drones um, or e-scooters, which... Um, right now, my, my students are very independently, um, in, in collaboration with a number of, of stakeholders, developing best practices for regulating e-scooters. Um, and that involves original thought. It involves application of others' original thought. Um, and it brings the structures of legal thinking to problems. Uh, in the same way that engineers bring the structures and creativities of engineering and scientific thinking um, to solve or create new problems. Because that's really the history of engineering and public policy. You take one set of problems, you replace that old set with a new set, and you just 
really hope that your okay. nuclear problems and aggregate are more than your own It's also another reason why we can't talk about the discipline in isolation. Um, why engineers should be working with lawyers, why engineering professors should be working with legal. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE. And there are programs that do that. So when I'm involved with that at Michigan, every year we take a group of graduate students from law, public policy, engineering, business, information, and we throw them at an impossible problem. And we say, work together. We expect you to fail. But maybe in a context, you're going to come up with some insight, some bold idea, drawing from your different strengths that will inspire something a year, five, ten years down the road to help us overcome these 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 real core challenges. Yeah. Well that's that sounds like a like a great a great is that a class? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a problem solving initiative um mm-hmm. part, in cooperation with the um program in law and mobility up up there at the University of Michigan. Wow, yeah, that sounds great. Uh okay, well I have uh just one more question for you that you could hopefully leave our, our listeners with something. Uh so it's kind of two part. One is, uh, what are you currently working on? I know you just talked about the e-scooter initiative that you have, but what are you currently working on? And second, if you were to predict five years, 10 years from now, what are the issues that you see us still having to deal with, with respect to what you do? Right now, um, I am working and writing on what it means to be a trustworthy company. That is a company worthy of the trust that we as the public and regulators necessarily place in it. Um, this is an important shift um, from, uh, from the way that I think trust gets talked about publicly. Um, so often the conversation is, do people trust technologies? We need to make them trust technologies. And my answer to that is, well, maybe they shouldn't, but inevitably they will. Um, that's the history of, of technologies that we've seen. People complain about about you know, a privacy invasion, but they still carry phones around in their pocket. Right? They, they say, I would never use a smartphone, but then they use a smartphone. Um, when technologies offer effectively marketed solutions to problems, people will adopt them. And so... Trust in technology and surveys that purport to measure people's trust in automated driving and other technologies don't offer us a lot. Um, what does offer us a lot, I think, is asking, well, given that we're going to have this level of trust necessarily by consumers and regulators that don't have the information or expertise or resources that a company might have, what are the markers that indicates whether a company is worthy of our trust? Um, and I developed about 10 of these, and I'm working through them in, in specific papers, um, starting with this idea of, of candidly sharing your safety philosophy, of, again, saying, this is what we're doing, um, this is why we think it's reasonably safe, and this is why you should believe us. Uh, and that, in, that involves telling stories not just about successes, but also about failures, about providing a level of candor that I think many companies are, are not very comfortable with. Um, there are there are lots of legal um, consequences attached to all of this, uh, and so um, the, the the first paper I have on this topic, um, the trustworthy company, explores a, a few of a few of those. Um, I I think that this this topic is is going to be increasingly important as we move to automation across domains. So not just on the 
not just automation on the roads, but in the skies and in our homes and in our offices and in our bodies and in all the non-physical forms that may ultimately have even more of an effect than the, the most obvious manifest physical embodiments of, of automation. Um, so I sure hope that 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 we're talking about those same issues in five, ten years. Uh, it would be great if we'd solve them, but we won't. That's part of the reality of the law of the newly possible. We're, we're going to be creating problems as we create solutions. Um, what I think in the in the things we're still going to be grappling with, um, really recognizing that technologies don't evolve in isolation. Um, this is the Jetsons fallacy, where we take the one technology of interest, let's call it the self-driving car, we extrapolate that into the future, but we assume that everything else about our world is fixed, that we still have every other technology that's the same, that our laws are the same, that our socioeconomic conditions are the same. Uh, and in fact, I think so much is going to change that we're going to be faced with grappling on a more sectoral level with these questions. So not just motor vehicle safety, but when motor vehicles are also in the sky um, or on the sidewalk um, and where people are taking trips for very different reasons because other technologies have negated the need for certain kinds of, of on-road trips uh, and where social or economic conditions are, are motivating um, responses to, to problems we didn't think we had. Uh, and this is where, you know, we, we've talked mostly about, about automated driving, but automated driving is instructive because I think it is going to carry a lot of baggage, that people are going to put so many of their hopes and fears about the future in the things that they encounter and they see. And so it might be an a, a anonymous algorithm that takes someone's job, but they might blame the, the driverless car they see going down the street. Um, Someone might might um, be concerned about rapid uh, demographic change, um, and they might blame the, the self-driving car for that. Uh, and so stepping back and more generally saying, what are our goals for the world, for society, and how do we use technology as one set of tools to help achieve those goals, along with other tools like policy, like law, um, that's going to be a real critical question going forward. Technologies can't be the goal, um, but that that leads to the question, what what should the goals be? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's great. Definitely gives us something that to, to think about, and I don't know if it gives me something to look forward to or something to fear for the future, though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyways, uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking your time today uh, to uh, talk with me and record this podcast. And uh, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? Um, look, look me up. Um, um, yeah, yeah, look me up. Okay. Uh, so uh, or you know, come on, come on down to University of South Carolina. <laughs> I think I think we're enrolling a, a new class. All right. <laughs> okay, well, great. Thank you. Thank you again. And um, thank you all for listening to our podcast today. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Professor Smith, and thank you, Professor Miller. Dear listeners, let me thank you for being with us. Don't forget to share and subscribe and check out our other media 
for other news. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Intelligent Transportation Systems Society. This was Dr. Maryam Kovishkar from IEEE ITS Society.